Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And I really like shipwrecks. I don't know if I've mentioned this to you before. You have not. <laughs> I know I mentioned it at, at Dragon Con and people kind of laughed because it's a weird thing to say that you really like, but they're just so interesting. I mean, there's so much to discover. They are fascinating. I mean, a window into the past and things are preserved that might not be otherwise. Yeah, things that definitely would not have made it if they had been above the surface this whole time. So people like me who really like shipwrecks got pretty excited back in the summer of 2009 when there was all this news about archaeologists finding the untouched remains of five Roman ships. And then there was a PBS show, Secrets of the Dead, recently profiling this expedition. So, I mean, pretty interesting stuff. Five untouched remains. Definitely. And back in 2009, the lead archaeologist on this expedition, Timmy Gambin, he described the area as a graveyard of ships. Which sounds very menacing, doesn't very it? Very spooky, yeah. Yeah, so it makes us wonder, what is in these ships? And where were they going? Why did they all wreck so close together? And why did they sink in the first place? These are some of the questions, some of the many questions we will be answering in today's podcast. Yep. But this whole thing started in 2008, right? Yeah, the news broke in 2009, but the whole research project really started in 2008. Yep, at that time, a group of marine archaeologists and ocean scientists that make up the Aurora Trust, they began a survey of the area around Ventatene in the Tyrrhenian Sea off of Naples. Yeah, and Ventatene is a pretty interesting island itself. I mean, it's definitely worth discussing its history a little bit before we get into the shipwrecks, but it's this volcanic, tiny island, and today it's a, a tourist spot. I sent Dublina a picture. It looked pretty <laughs> picturesque. Um, it only has 500 permanent residents, but back in ancient Roman times, it was this grand emperor's retreat, and it was called Pantataria, and it also conveniently was a pretty nice place to exile nobles and imperial family members. But we're going to be talking about that on a later podcast. So listen up then. Yep. So Augustus, he transformed this island. He built a villa and a complex system of cisterns there to collect rainwater since there were no natural springs to get water from. And more importantly, he had this harbor built basically dug out of the rock instead of building out of seawalls, and somehow it all still worked. Yeah, that's pretty amazing to me. Um, but the island didn't remain this bustling uh, stop on trade routes for that long. The emperors eventually abandoned it, and hermits were the only people who remained. And eventually it became a pirate's den because it was convenient enough to the mainland that you could go raid um, raid other ships, raid port towns, and then come back to your den with all your loot. And by the 18th century, the Bourbon kings decided that they wanted to start redeveloping the area a little bit, redeveloping Ventatene. And partly that was to support this prison that they had built on an even tinier island that's right next to Ventatene, Santo Stefano. And 
interesting. This this whole island's history is just so weird. But <laughs> this tinier island is where Mussolini kept a lot of his political prisoners. So this has always been a good spot for exiling people you never want to hear from again. Yeah, a pretty grim, sort of eerie place. So there are basically two takeaways here. Ventatene was remote enough to be a perfect retreat or a perfect prison. Depending on who you are. Depending on who you are and who you're dealing with. And it's also convenient enough to be a halfway point, a kind of rest stop, or a layer when traveling through the often treacherous and bustling Mediterranean. Yeah, whether you're a a Roman merchant or a Barbary pirate, it's a good place to stop. So due to this geographical importance... And um, it's proximity to all these ancient shipping lines that are, of course, racing back and forth across the Mediterranean. It makes sense that there would have been a few shipwrecks in the area. It would be the last port of call for more than one ship. But a graveyard, I think that was a little bit of a surprise. But in 2008, the Aurora Trust started to survey the seabed around Ventatene and Santo, Santo Stefano. And they used their Klein system 3,900 side scan sonar. This is so cool to me. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it is, I, I just imagine it so neat and clean on paper, but they essentially established a grid surrounding the island, like a triangular grid, and then trailed the sonar behind a boat to make sure that they got an absolutely complete picture of the seabed. It is really cool. Yeah, they were basically creating an underwater map so that they could check for any abnormalities. And that's what they call them too, abnormalities. So it could be anything from an ancient shipwreck or presumably just some junk on the bottom of the ocean. I guess it depends on when it's from, whether you consider it junk or something worth checking out. Sure. Um, And it's a surprisingly fruitful mapping effort. I mean, I guess they thought they would find some things, but um, they find quite a lot. They find piles of what look like amphorae, which are ancient Roman shipping vessels. And we're going to talk a little bit more about them later because they're pretty interesting. And a few other just abnormal blips on the seafloor, maybe wrecks, maybe not, just things worth checking out later. And then this isn't terribly related to this episode, but they find the wreck of a famous sunken ship from World War II. Um, but there's more work to be done. Yep, the sonar isn't quite going to cut it, so the team plans to re- to return to the area in the summer of 2009 for a closer look at things. Yeah, so they come back in 2009. The 2008 scan had showed three potential ancient shipwrecks. And in 2009, they extend the range of that scan a little bit more, and they find two more wrecks that they decide are definitely worth checking out with their ROV camera because... Sonar just lets you know there's an abnormality. It doesn't really let you know exactly what it is. So we're going to give you a rundown, a profile, if you will, of these five ancient wrecks they find. Yeah, the first one is well-preserved, and it's from the first century A.D. It's filled with cargo of Spanish amphorae from Batica. And, yeah, the, this is probably the best time to tell you what the <laughs> amphorae You'll wanna are. You'll want to know. Um, if you've ever seen just like a, a statue of a pedestal with this urn type of thing on top, very well might have been a dedication to an amphora or to amphorae, the plural. Um, and there are these ancient Roman shipping containers, and usually they're really pointy on the bottom. And they look um, 
almost like if you've ever seen handmade lace. They look kind of like bobbins. Those big wooden oh, bobbins. That's- it's good um, to compare it to. Yeah, and so they can't stand up on their own because they're pointy. But when you line them all up in a row, you can also stack them. The points fit in exactly uh, between the other ones. So you can fill a cargo hold of a ship to make the best available use of your space. And when they all fit together like that, they kind of form just a lock, like a puzzle all put together. Yep, and these amphorae would have held... Garum, right? Yeah. Which is a type of fermented fish sauce that you could literally douse on any meal. Yeah, I think the Romans were pretty fond of it, too, which I know fermented fish sauce sounds like kind of something that wouldn't be very good. But, I mean, if you've ever had Thai food, you know, it's it's tasty as long as you balance it out with other things. Um, so the second rack is also really well preserved. It also carries amphorae. It's from the first century BC, so a bit older. And, uh, these amphorae carried wine from Campania. And you'll find a lot of these ships carried wine. It just gives you a little taste of how, <laughs> how important the trade in wine was in the Roman Empire. The third wreck is from the first century AD, and it broke into two at some point. So it may have had a more violent wreck than some of the other ships that were involved here. They carried mortaria, which is basically the mortar part of a mortar and pestle, and Italian wine amphorae from Campania. Again, they've got to have their their wine. The fourth wreck is from the first century AD, and it's not quite as well preserved, but in some ways it has the most interesting cargo. So it's got those wine amphorae again, but it also has glass frit, which I had to look up what this was um, from the Aurora Trust site, which actually I should mention this now. You can find pictures of all of these wrecks at the site. Pretty cool. Which I definitely recommend. But you can use this glass to make real glass, like what you would think of, or to make pigments or just all sorts of things. And the ship also carried metal bars, which may have been um, destined to be part of some statue or some kind of weapons. And then it carried these huge, incredibly heavy metal cylinders. And the archaeologists still aren't quite sure what those may have been used for. The fifth wreck was from a little bit later, It was from the 5th century A.D., and it carried more of this fish sauce, and um, the fish sauce was in North African amphorae. Yeah, so again, kind of showing how wide this trading range was. Um, But it would be really bad to lose your shipment of garum. I mean, you might think that the wine would be the most precious shipment we mentioned here. The garum, if it was high-quality garum, could go for the Roman equivalent of $1,000 for two pints. So having a whole ship of it go down would be pretty bad news. Yeah. Um, So the Aurora Trust decided that the ROV pictures were nice. You know, they kind of give them a good idea of what's on there. But the human eye is better. And so they picked a few sites to send divers to, just three of them. And the issue here is that the sites are really, really deep. And they're deeper than 300 feet. And that's part of the reason why 
these wrecks are still preserved because if they were at shallower depths, recreational divers would have found them long ago and presumably pilfered them, messed them up. Um, it's because they're out of range for most folks that they're still so pristine. Yep, even the research divers could only spend a few minutes down there before they had to start the lengthy decompression process and come back up. So they pick their most highly trained divers to go on these expeditions and they send them in not just to kind of look at what's there, but also to bring stuff back up, whatever they can bring with them to analyze later. Yeah, hopefully get some museum specimens out of it. Um, so at the second wreck, which is that one from the first century BC, the divers find these stacks of perfect amphora. I mean, it, it looks like the day they were loaded. And of course, these don't look like shipwrecks that, I mean, you, you probably, you're probably used to pictures of the Titanic or something like that, where clearly there is a ship underwater. Of course, being 2,000 years old, in this case, more than 2,000 years old, the ship is gone. All the wooden parts are gone. It's just the cargo that remains. Um, but they're able to bring up one amphora from that wreck. And uh, if you check out the Secrets of the Dead video on this one, it's it's funny. It, they bring it up and put it into a little on-deck pool to, you know, keep it. It's been underwater for so many years. If it's right. up in the air, it's not going to weather well. Um, and then they use a database to help them match the shape of it to a like amphora from the same period. It kind of reminded me of CSI or Bones or something for M4I because it's just blipping past all the silhouettes until finally they have a match, which helps identify the age, which is the first century BC, and the contents, which were probably wine. M4I forensics. Exactly. So then the divers are able to also obtain samples from rec site number three. And that one was the one that was split in half. From there, they can carry off four mortaria, and these are all identical. So it's like an example of Roman mass production. Yeah, everybody had to get their mortaria in France or Spain or wherever they were because it was the best Roman tool available. And from the fourth site, the one that has that mysterious metal cargo, they're unfortunately not able to bring any samples to the surface, but they take a lot of photos. Um, that one is deeper than the others, even. It's at 480 feet. Um, so that's 2009, definitely accomplishing a few more goals with this project. And then in 2010, just this past summer, they went back for another look. Yep. Again, they extend the scan range and they sent down the ROV for more high-res images of the area. And they were focusing mainly on places that didn't get documented in 2009. And they also recover another amphora. Yeah. And I think a National Geographic crew may have accomplished accompanied them that year. So maybe we'll get another documentary with cool underwater photography next year. Um, but okay, we still have our, our questions that we raised in the introduction, which was why is this a graveyard? Why are there so many ships here? And there are a few reasons why. And one of them is just volume. I mean, Rome is a huge global exporter and importer during this time. And that's evidenced on the land by all the roads they build to, tra- you know, to transport merchant 
ships and goods and the army, of course. Um, but there were also lots of shipping lines, and it was very important for the empire for the shipping lines to be relatively safe, as safe as they could be, so that merchants could trade goods with a certain amount of confidence. And they just crisscross across the Mediterranean between Greece and North Africa and France and Spain. They go across the Black Sea, between the Channel, you know, in England and France. So, I mean, just everywhere you can imagine, there are Roman ships trading goods. Yep, high traffic area, right? So do another reason behind this was that due to volume and markup, the empire could afford to lose a ship or two now and then. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's kind of sad, but true. Yep, especially since some things like wine, which Rome had a lock on. I mean, we talked about all the wine that we saw, but they were the ones mainly responsible for distributing this. Provinces like Spain and France that were per- perfectly capable of growing their own and making their own wine had to buy from Roman merchants at instead. At a big markup, of course. Mm-hmm. Oh, of course. And in some other cases, items were mass-produced on the cheap and exported. So, Yeah, if you want to do as the Romans do. You have to buy now. You have to pay a little bit. And then, I mean, the other main reason, aside from volume here, is location. So Ventatene, as we mentioned, is a really great stopping point. It's very convenient, and it has that nice harbor that was built by Augustus. And so it makes a nice place for an outbound ship to rest for a day, to get new supplies, and to take shelter from bad weather. But Unfortunately, what this, you know, the same reasons that make it such a convenient rest stop also make it potentially very dangerous. And that's because despite that nice sloping harbor, most of the island has these very steep seawalls, high rock cliffs. And if you're in a storm and it hits when you're pretty near the island, you're not just going to be getting the waves from the wind and the storm, you're going to be getting the waves that are bouncing off of the rock walls and they're pitching you back and forth. Yep. So this could basically toss the ship around and then the stacked amphorae that they found, that could have shifted. And if those shift, then the ship kind of lists to one side. Yeah, the, the, the amphorae will shift and a few that are supporting the weight will start to break, and then suddenly your nice interlocking puzzle that fits the hold so perfectly doesn't fit right anymore, and they all kind of lean to one side. And with a listing ship, it's pretty easy for a wave to take it down. I mean, it's notable that the majority of these wrecks look like they sunk intact. Yeah, most of the amphorae were still intact, right? Yeah, and, and they're just in a in a ship shape, sorry to, <laughs> to use that in that way, but I mean, they're, they don't look like they were torn to pieces and broken up on the waves. They look like they just sunk all of a sudden. So it's still a bit of a mystery, too. So I guess that's all we know for now on these five Roman shipwrecks, although it definitely looks like we'll be finding out more in the near future, hopefully. Yeah, so there may be another podcast on a different aspect of this someday soon. Perfect follow-up. And we actually do have another podcast coming now, as we mentioned. This one is going to be more focused on Bento Chene and that exiled prisoner reputation that it has. Um, But first, we're going to do some listener mail. So this email is from Hannah, and she was writing in response to an episode Candace and I recorded a few weeks ago on five famous historical weddings. And Candace and I were a little skeptical of this 
rumor that wild horses on Cumberland Island came up to Carolyn Bissett Kennedy and nibbled on her Lily of the Valley bouquet. We were just like, uh. we've both been to Cumberland and know that those horses are very much wild. <laughs> I've never seen one come up to a person. Come and snack on Yeah, and so bouquet. Hannah wrote, You're absolutely right in your skepticism. It's very unlikely that a wild horse would approach her, and in the off chance that it did, it certainly wouldn't chomp on her bouquet. Like foxglove, Lily of the Valley contains saponins and other toxic substances. These toxins are there to discourage animals like horses from grazing on the sweet-smelling plants. All part of the Lily of the Valley plant are quite poisonous and should be handled with care. Wild horses may nibble on many things, but they certainly won't dine on the Lily of the Valley. Let's hope for the horse's sake that this story, while sweet, is just a rumor. So, What a cute letter. It's really cute, and I... I, I think it's good to know. I mean, Lily the Valley, super poisonous. Yep. It seems like maybe not the best flower to put in your bouquet. I don't know. No, not if you have animals at your wedding. <laughs> You're having a barnyard-themed yes. wedding. Avoid Lily of the Valley. Um, so I guess that's our advice for the day. And if you have any more... I don't know, stories from shipwrecks to horses, feel free to email us. We're at History Podcast at How Stuff Works. We also have a Twitter account at Mist in History and a Facebook fan page. And if you want to learn a little more about underwater photography, we have an article called How Underwater Photography Works. You can search for it by typing in underwater photography on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. 